Hey friends, this is Reese from Smart Council. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. This week's episode was recorded early on in the quarantine phase and was recorded on an online platform. As a result, the audio quality is variable at times. Most of the conversation is mostly intact most of the time. Thus, I am delighted to share it. It was a great conversation and I hope it is really enriching. Where I had to do a bit of a patch job, I apologize and I thank you for listening anyway. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council. Two guys talk about feminism. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I am Reese Basimio and joined on the Zoom by a good friend and colleague, uh, Nick Breckbill. Uh, how's it going, Nick? Uh, doing good. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. I'm, I'm up early in the morning and it's, it's good. So, yeah. Yeah, I know. Me too. I'm thinking like, you know, now it's like quarantine day four for me. I'm feeling like I should be taking advantage of like sleeping. But I'm like, you know, no, it's good to get up today. Right. <laughs> it's a beautiful day today. It is a beautiful day, the day that we're recording. And yeah, I'm thinking the this quarantine, it could be um, my 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 sparing, hesychastic self was wants to be like, oh, cool. Like all of this, you know, like alone time and quiet time and relaxed time. And once you know it, I'm actually like working more than normal. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I know I'm realizing that too. Yeah, because I've been like working from home. So it's been like, I, I would think that originally I would be excited to be like, okay, it's more relaxed the way I'm working and my setting. But I'm realizing I've been almost compensating more, which kind of like work hard because I'm like, okay, just because you're working from home, <laughs> you can't be slacking off. So then I realized the other day, I'm like, worked the whole straight eight hours, and I was thinking to myself, did I even take a break? <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotta still take a break, gotta still take a shower at some point. And stuff. Yeah. <laughs> for sure, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, for the uh, listener who uh, does not have the privilege, like I do, of knowing you in person, um, do tell what is your corner of the counseling world you know, what do you do? What's your specialty? Who's your favorite client type of client? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I work with uh, a community mental health agency. I am a ICTS therapist. That means I, it's a program um, and those initials are for um, intensive community-based treatment services. So I work specifically from uh, youth ranging from about like four to 17 years old who, who meet the criteria for level D services. So level D is uh, usually like more intensive based therapy that's uh, crisis stabilization. Usually the clients that we're getting are being referred from uh, coordinators from the county who are struggling with like severe mental health symptoms or who are at risk of, you know, serious risk of harming themselves or other people. And uh, usually been referred by their school counselors, their IEPs, people who have seen like really, you know, significant, uh, serious, you know, mental health concerns. So we uh, work with clients for supposed to be three months stabilization and then refer them out to outpatient from there. But a lot of times we work with kiddos who might need a little bit more time than others. So then after three months, we, you know, re-off them for about another month to month, depending on like how they're doing. And yeah, the hope is to get uh, to help them stabilize for three months and then go from there. So a lot of the work that we do is very much just uh, crisis stabilization and being able to like help minimize and deescalate the uh, like around two thirds of the you know the crisis stabilization goals. So it could be you know people who are feeling you know kids who are you know reacting very you know aggressively towards you know parents or those who are you know struggling with you know suicidal ideation significantly and have already made attempts coming out of unity or coming out of like ED departments and need direct uh, services right away, but like don't necessarily meet the criteria to be like, let's say like in residential serious care, like that are acute. So 
we're kind of like the in between of like you know serious like outpatient and then like the more serious like inpatient like residential like acute like treatment services okay that's really that's really great what uh what age range of kid do you work with um it depends on uh what referrals we get i mean like i have some clients who are you know five to seven years old and then i have some clients who are 15 and 17 <laughs> so it's a very weird uh gamut of like age ranges and stuff so it keeps you on your toes because you know you don't like because neither one of like other therapists that are on the team get to specifically work with an age demographic it's kind of based on you know what the client's preferences are whether or not they prefer to meet with a female client or a male client and uh go from there i run the gamut of like who i get to see so it keeps me on my toes but uh it's been great experience so far yeah that's great and did you say there's like a community component to your job also or? yeah so um that's kind of one of the cool things about my job that's very unique and very weird and it's interesting to get other therapists uh take on this so i get the privilege of being able to see clients out in the community so I'm able to meet with, you know, clients in the, I mean, before the quarantining <laughs> right, right. and uh, seeing clients in their homes and schools out in the community. It's really cool. So we get uh, clients to sign a re uh, specific like release form that gives us the ability to uh, meet with clients in their homes, be able to even drive them around, you know, the community, be able to do a session while driving, being able to, you know, have a session like in a, um, like in a, like a fast food restaurant even, or uh, uh, being able to meet in a park. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's really cool because you get to meet with clients in a way that, you know, you wouldn't be able to do like, let's say like in an outpatient office. And before it not necessarily freaked me out, but it definitely was a little unselling because it's so different from what you're, you're trained to think about therapy, like in a basic like outpatient setting when you're in your you know, master's in counseling program. But uh, for me, I've, you know, really enjoyed it and have noticed just how different people re will react and respond to you when they're out in the community in an environment that's more comfortable and fitting to them, as opposed to what can be intimidating for some, not all clients, but especially like younger clients when it comes to you know, meeting in a closed in office. So it's, uh, it's interesting. It's got its own uh, perks and ways in which it uh, is fun and interesting and different, but it also has its own components that are, you know, that much more, stressful and uh definitely has to make you you have to think more about you know your environment and how you're responding and how you're keeping confidentiality out in the community as well as even just being in your own car so it adds more factors that definitely can make it much more stressful and it's not for everybody that's what i've realized but if you're you know comfortable with it it's definitely a different world like different kind of viewpoint to being a therapist that i personally have enjoyed and have like learned a lot from. Yeah, there's so many factors to consider there, but something about that sounds really exciting. I know while I'm reflecting when I when I started out counseling, I that that whole idea just sounded really just exhausting and really intimidating and mm -hmm. like I didn't want to do it. And I had a really good friend who like he didn't want to do what I was doing, like sitting in a, sitting in an office. Um, and now that I've been sitting in an office for, you know, almost a decade, I'm thinking I I'm loving those moments when a client's like can we go for a walk or when I can say, let's go for a walk because it can feel like kind of just like heavy w with an adult, but with my few teen clients also I'm noticing like, mm -hmm. they're just, they need to move. They need to be active. And like, we just seem to like not be just like looking at each other's faces all the time. Yeah. So that's really great. I appreciate yeah. the work that you do. Um, like that's sort of like intensity work. Uh, I mean, that's kind of like fun and exciting and a little intimidating for me, like doing with adults, but um, I don't know working with kids is just this whole other ball game. And I, I think I've forgotten that language by and large. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely different because, um, I th and I think it's different. I don't think one is necessarily more difficult or weird for, the it's just, I mean, I'm sure you can attest to this as well. It just depends on like what your preference is and your way of counseling. I think that, uh, you know, for those who are interested in going in, into more like, you know, child and, you know, teen route it's definitely much more time consuming in regards to the rapport building so it can definitely be uh sometimes frustrating but also stressful when you're someone new to the field and you know you want to be able to get to work and when you like have your first couple like teen clients 
they want may not have want anything to do with you or you know might not be able to get to the gritty you know things that you'll say uh you know like an adult outpatient client might be able to get to not to say you know like all out adult outpatient you know clients know exactly what they want to work on or what they're uh because they they usually don't know awesome well thanks for sharing a little bit about your corner of the counseling world and uh appreciate the work that you do thank you yeah yeah so um feminism we uh we're plotting a little bit about this episode and thinking this would be important to talk about and um for as long as I've known you, I mean, this has always been, it's been a distinct thread of, of you are, of who you are and, and your personality and, and your values. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your journey to come to, you know, identify as a feminist and um, what that means to you and why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've been that way as long as I can remember it. Didn't know I necessarily was by valued a feminist when I was, because like I can identify it at least when I was like in late middle school, early high school, because around that time, uh, kind of a little background, my parents at the time were adopting uh, two kiddos, my little brothers, Tate and Finn from um, Uganda, Africa at the time. And I was, uh, you know, behind the States and it took them about a month. So I was living, you know, with my uh, grandma at the time. And while I was living with my grandma, uh, realized at the time uh, that my parents were being pushed out of a church they were both working in. To give some background, my parents were pastors at a um, uh, kind of a more conservative reformed like Baptist uh, church. And uh, as I became older and became more aware of the situation, I was noticing how my parents were being pushed out of this church specifically. And part of the reason why, and I realized this later on and started to get more details of it as I was in like late middle school, early high school, that they were being pushed up because of the way in which they uh, viewed each other in their relationship and how they did ministry together. Realizing that, you know, uh, because my parents were equal on all things, including, you know, how they did church and how they did ministry, it uh, caused rifts within that church that pushed, you know, that were, you know, essentially kicking them out the door. And I realized they were doing this while my parents were gone because people were coming up to me and essentially trying to uh, uh, speak poorly about them in front of me and trying to, you know, oh even goodness. like needed to get to talk about it. And so I always found that weird and I started to notice it more and more. And then I got more details from my parents later about it, but you know, I got a little bit more exposed to some of the corruption that can be experienced within ministry, especially with those who believe in, you know, traditional values of like, uh, you know, male being ahead of the household and, you know, women being like, you know, below and being like, you know, the second citizen to the marriage and even the family. And I remember, you know, in high school, noticing it more and more and more specifically within ministry, because that's what I'd grown up in pastor's kid, (laughs) you know, that was, you know, in my environment and, you know, my social circle and realizing for myself, just, how angry it made me. And for a while, it even pushed me away from even being a part of, you know, that circle itself as well. And uh, as I grew up more and more within high school, I just realized that I was one of the only few males within my circle in high school, and sometimes even in college, that felt strongly about this. Recognizing that, you know, just even the way that, you know, uh, I would talk differently about, you know, women in, you know, just social circles in high school, like what some people, I can't stand this term, like refer to as locker room talk, how I just never was interested in it. It grossed me out, but then it was weird to other guys growing up, you know, it did gross me out and that I wasn't, you know, a fan of it and didn't, you know, give it to it and would even be bullied and made fun of for pushing back on it. And so as time progressed, you know, just become more and more confirmed in the belief of just like, you know, you know, refusing to go down that way of like the toxic masculinity way of like viewing women and giving into that and been, you know, an advocate for it within, you know, the social circles that I'm in, as well as, you know, uh, the ministry field and just in my own personal life. Yeah. So for you, there's been a lot of 
things modeled for you, your parents were able to model, sounds like a very pretty egalitarian-ish um, mode of interacting. And I know we're throwing on around some big technical terms already, but, um, but it sounds like what, what you got to see was, you know, on a man and a woman who were partners, who were mm-hmm. you know, very much regarded each other as both, both really valuable and in the particulars of their, of their, of their vocation also had like pretty equal functionality also, which, and for, for me at this point now, I mean, that makes like a, a whole lot of sense, but, but, um, but, um, but I can see where that might stand out as different to some people from, from some traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for sharing a little bit of that context. And I think with that, so, I think our audience is kind of mixed. You know, there's going to be some people who are like, oh yeah, feminism. I know exactly what that is. And like, you know, all five waves <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and other people who are maybe like, what is this? And why are they talking about that? And, you know, um, and I know it's this hugely politicized thing at the same time that it's just really, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that go into it. Yeah. Um, um you know, it sounds like talking about it is really important because it's, um, well, the way I hear you talk about it, it's not strictly just about women, but it, it really becomes an, about women and men in, in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. What are some other reasons you think that it's important that, that we be talking about feminism in general and in particular that, that men be talking about feminism? I think... It's a big question. Um, I think just the main thing is that, you know, men, women, whatever, you know, sexual identity you identify with, you know, just all people walks of life, you know, this is an issue that just shouldn't be tackled by women because it affects, because the issue of feminism, it's in almost everything and every aspect of our life and within, you know, within the job market, within ministry, within, you know, uh, the medical health field. I mean, like it, you know, it impacts and is in like in everything that like in all aspects and walks of life. So therefore if it, you know, is impacted and can be seen in all these different areas of our life, therefore this shouldn't just be an issue that women should be on the forefront of because this is a minority that's, you know, in a lot of ways, been oppressed for so so long and while you know one coming through I mean yeah we've made great strides recently to bring more awareness to that you know I mean so like therefore you know some people you know say especially men I've heard be like well you know unequal pay you know it's all I mean like it's all figured out like it's all good it's all different I mean it's when I hear people make the argument that you know what else can we do it's all good now, you know, we yeah. made enough progress. It, you know, for me, I think it's kind of like the same sort of, you know, ignorance that's used as far as like you know, racism is gone, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's, yeah, it's not around anymore. What's the point of black lives matter? <laughs> you know, like yeah, that's yeah. Kind of argument not to say, you know, like, and not to try to like get into comparisons of like, if like what, what minority group has been more oppressed than the other, but the, but just kind of addressing and tackling the same sort of, you know, ignorance in regards to, we've made such great progress. Therefore, what else needs to be discussed or what, what else need, what else needs to be hashed out exactly. So I think that because it's just such a big issue, I think just in general, it shouldn't just be women discussing it and being on the forefront of the issue essentially. Right. And there, and there's, um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot in what you said too. And I mean, you, you briefly like skirted in the edge of, of, of intersectionality, whatever, comparing, you know, like, like black lives matter, and and racism to, to feminism uh and it's true i mean they're 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 different things different phenomenon yeah. uh, phenomena different people groups however you know they they overlap a whole lot and absolutely um you know i mean we're talking technically about you know men, men and women in this conversation but then there's you know you know men of color women of color and you mm-hmm. know and then yeah. i mean we could also factor in like class and education level and um sexual orientation and a whole bunch of things yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, but it, I think um, what a, you're mentioning, you're mentioning um, making progress. And, and I think it is important to, to note some of the historical components of this where, you know, in a lot of contexts for in a lot of places in the world for a lot of time, um, there's been a lot of disparity in the experiences of men versus women. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's, and of course, it's it's not unilateral. I mean, there there have been very powerful women, and there have been um, very men who have had no privileges at all. Um, but but this is also a a systemic phenomenon where systemically, yeah. typically, instinctively, culturally, um, you know, society tends to be more built to support the experience of a man than in the experience of a woman. Women mm-hmm. most of the time. I think I hear you talking about also how. Uh, you know, we have made some progress in in evening that out, and yes. something mm-hmm. like you know equal pay that's a little bit more sensible, and maybe more people hopefully are are beginning. Yeah. To, um, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But that's only one narrow slice of life. I mean, there's oh, still um, there's still like like the internal component of like how we instinctively think about each other, and you know. A man can, you know, a male employee, um, a male employer could give his male and female employees like the same, same wage for for the same work. But if he's still, you know, cracking misogynistic jokes and being super sexist and like not actually treating them the same way, then there's mm-hmm. there's still a lot of progress that has yet to be made. Oh, absolutely. I think that like that's the thing that I've noticed still very much lacking because especially, you know, you know, males have, you know, for so long, unfortunately, been so conditioned to view, you know, by the way they were raised and just by cultural norms and like, you know, the systemic, you know, sexism, sexism is still is there within just the way in which we view people. Just even the fact that, you know, I think of that uh, uh, toxic masculine, just as an example of just, you know, the, you know, the struggles that, you know, we still have as far as like viewing you know, certain viewpoints, like when that toxic masculinity ad came out for uh, Gillette and uh, just seeing on social media, you know, the uproar of people who were like, oh, this is great. This is powerful. Like, you know, it's about time, you know, we like bring this out. And then the pushback that I heard from so many other, not only males, but females, (laughs) depending on like what circle they're in, pushing back on it, thinking that it was, you know, such a toxic, uh, you know, <laughs> library word, uh, you know, like disgusting way of like viewing, you know, like men or like men don't view that way of women. Like this isn't normal. This isn't, you know, part of our, you know, you know, cultural norms or the way in which, you know, men are raised and yada, yada, yada. And I was thinking to myself, you know, the, the continued pushback on it and what I've seen from, you know, men, the quick suddenness to like what you were talking about like we're kind of like alluding to like the idea of becoming triggered and being easily you know upset or feel as though they're you know like a victim or like that's not the way i was i've I've viewed women this isn't that or you know not being comfortable enough or confident within their own idea of what it means to be a man that they need to go and prosecute an ad like that or or like then like start pushing for like you know we're the ones being oppressed (laughs) um uh, which is you know absolutely ridiculous but i think that you know what you were alluding to as far as like the way in which we view it you know mentally just in the way in which we you know like a like a male superior might treat like a like a female inferior within like an own like something as simple as you know working at a at a grocery store or working like in in the corporate world i mean it's definitely still prevalent and it's unfortunately really sad that so many males that I've seen, and this is what irks me and gets me so passionate and fired up is that so many, you know, males still struggle with just because this message is being pushed out there as far as in which so many men have, you know, suppressed uh, the rise of, you know, women being more equal in all like playing fields of our lives, view it as some sort of hits that they've done something wrong or, they're a part of the the issue when that's never been the case it's just more of encouraging people to be a part of the solution yeah for 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 men who might be just just encountering this conversation and mm-hmm. you know might have heard feminism thrown around as a buzzword or a slur or just you know this thing that's on you know social media all of the time yeah uh, i wonder nick do you have a favorite or go-to definition for what feminism is or even just like a kind of a description of some of its basic tenets uh, yeah, I mean, and I'll preface this, you know, I need to be doing more research within this field. For me, for a long time, it's been just a way of viewing the world and constantly checking my own privilege as a white heterosexual male. So for me, 
like that's where I come to this argument with is recognizing all those, you know, those things and how, you know, that, you know, and constantly checking my own viewpoint because of all those different factors and just constantly, you know, pushing myself and fighting for the conversation to be different. So with that being said, you know, that's what I bring to the table specifically and also my own experience and just seeing, uh, and just based on what I've seen within the therapy world and, and ministry and based on what I've seen so far, you know, in my, you know, 26 years of living, which hasn't been that much, but still I've seen some things. But that being said, you know, I need to do much more research on what, you know, my definition is or what it can encompass or even just like the studies of it. So but with that being said, I just essentially view it as just pushing for equality, pushing equality for uh, women to, you know, have the same opportunities when it comes to jobs and wages, uh, same opportunity to be viewed the same in regards to uh, being in a leadership role, whether it be in politics, whether it be in religion, whether it be in the corporate world, that, you know, not one sex is more superior than the other based on, you know, a job title or even based on just viewing them as a whole as a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Viewing them as a whole person, I think, is a really uh, great thing too. Um, I, uh, I mean, I don't want to like plant my flag here completely, but I mean, one of my favorite definitions, and it's a little bit of a joke, but not really. Um, I, had, I had a housemate once, and, and she had a T-shirt that used to say, "You know, feminism is a radical notion that women are people." Uh, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, which you know, um, it's just just great, and um, you know, you talk about. Um, bringing, bringing all people, uh, and we'll recognize kind of the non-binary component. Also, we can say you know bringing you know people of all genders to a place where there's you know equal opportunity, equal resource, you know you know equal mm-hmm. challenge, equal responsibility for sure. But like you know, um, you know, I, I think the idea is about leveling leveling the playing field, and the, and this idea that like oh yeah, we need to like you know make women people too speaks to just like how unlevel that playing field has been in many cases and absolutely um and that and i know that's been that's been part of something for me to work through in this also is as i i i I want to identify with you know some aspects of feminism for sure myself and it's and it is hard when i see that balance shifting because um you know my my little my little my little fragile male because yeah, I'll definitely identify with male fragility. I, I'm I'm very fragile. I'm very insecure. And uh, likewise, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, I, I don't like being threatened. I don't like being challenged. And uh, I don't like you know seeing that I might have done something wrong. Which you know, there's a shame narrative there. I'm sure. But yeah, you know, the reality is that yeah, we 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 do need to face these things, and it's okay to face these things. And mm-hmm. um, I think just to add to that, I think that it's okay to be uncomfortable with facing it i think that you know for me like i always you know um not always but like for as long as i can remember always i felt like i was a feminist in regards to like always like wanting equal rights with women but you know a lot of this was done with even with my own graduate program and you know undergrad as far as like just being able to not only like want equality but wrestling with and identifying and accepting the fact of I am a male and how I represent how in which I represent the problem and 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 so sometimes when you have those conversations it can be a little uncomfortable as a male and a lot of you know different like circles like it's still not talked about and it, it can still be a foreign idea and I think that it's okay and I've heard and you know um some you know a lot of like females mention this as well like it's okay to be uncomfortable with recognizing where in which you represent part of the problem as a male, especially as a white heterosexual male, and being able to wrestle with that and accept it and not, and, and, and just by wrestling with it, it doesn't mean that you have done specifically something that has been sex, that has been sexist or has been oppressive, but just that how in which you identify and who you are as a person and being able to wrestle with that and the different nuances and how that's been represented in you know, our history and it's okay to be uncomfortable with if with it if you're you know wrestling with it for the first time. It's just more so of like where do you go from there after you have wrestled with it and recognize the, the inequality and the power differential. I want to I want to shift gears a little bit here 
as we've talked about how feminism is laying or uh, leveling the, the playing field for 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 all genders and, mm-hmm. and, in, and in that way can be very good for men as well yeah and, you know in particular we we'll talk about you know for sometimes for for women it means you know more 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 freedom and opportunities you know as far as you know resources and jobs and safety security uh for men though i mean there's definitely i think um mm-hmm. more potentially more freedom and opportunity to like do some different you know, characterological things and emotional things and you know express some, their masculinity in different ways yeah um, and so um you know, kind of maybe addressing the the male listener who's wondering, like, does this apply to me or not? Um, you know, I'd be interested in comparing some of our experiences. Like, uh, you know, I'm I'm not that old and you're not that young, but like, uh, there's like a enough of a enough of a gap. I'd be curious to hear, like, what was your what was some of your experience growing up as as a male, and what were some of the what were some of the challenges or some of the the you know the toxic components you might have picked up and and how how do some of these feminist traits? Well, well, we'll get to like how some of these, you know, how we how we want to change that that masculine paradigm. But mm-hmm. um, I, I do want to kind of explore a little bit about how you know masculinity can benefit from this idea of a more equal playing field. No, yeah, that's a really good question. I think that uh, well, I'll start with this. I recognize that you know, you know, my own struggles with my insecurity of what it means to be, you know, quote unquote, a man, you know, are nothing in comparison to what, you know, could be experienced as a female. I just say that not to like say like, you know, one's worse than other because there's plenty of like those who've been oppressed that have been male. But anyway, I digress. I just want to like, just kind of put that out there. But as far as like, you know, my own experiences when it comes to, you know, how I view masculinity, I've recognized more and more as I've grown as an adult in my, you know, early, mid, late 20s that it's still very much ingrained in me early on, like based on what I was ingrained in me early on in regards to the little things that like, as soon as something happens, you know, where because like our minds go to interesting places when we become escalated or when we get stressed or when bad things happen, you know, our IQ drops, we go to places of like deep insecurity and fear. And I recognize that a lot of those are still ingrained in me. Like when I was finishing up grad, I just finished up grad school. I was, you know, looking for a uh, job still. And as I was actually, I was in the middle of, of grad school. I had just recently gotten married and the nonprofit residential place I was working at closed down. It was a really, really, you know, situation. It was really, really bad anyway. I digressed. So when I lost my job though, I, my mind went to some places that you know, concerned me and even, you know, my wife called me out on, which was, you know, I went to places like, I can't be the one without the job. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the male. They're... At this point in the conversation, the recording garbled beyond repair. What Nick was talking about, though, was the part of his story where he was seeking a new job and experiencing unemployment and wrestling with inner narratives along the lines of He's the male, therefore he needs to be the one making more income. And he commented on how he, in his inner wrestlings, he recognized he could be comfortable with his wife making more than him or having a job higher up on the pay scale. But the fact that she might be making the money while he was not made him feel uncomfortable. And him being very reflective, he he observed in himself that he was having emotional re- reactions to the situation, and, and even his wife was observing the same sorts of reactions. And at one point, she called him out on this in order to encourage him. And here we pick up on a restored recording. Hey, it's okay. I'm working like, you shouldn't be stressed about that. It's okay. I recognize for myself just how, like, oh, wow. <laughs> Would you look at that? <laughs> when, you know, the how like my mind still would go to places of putting myself as a male on an unhealthy, unhealthy like pedestal of like need to be, you know, the one that's large and in charge and recognizing that when it broke down, my mind would still go to places of thinking in those classic terms. But yeah, it, yeah it's you can't be the breadwinner. So something's wrong with you or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, w- I would relate to like um, growing up with the, these messages, so, some some just kind of subtly conditioned and some really explicitly, you know, talked about too. Um, 
you know, this idea of, you know, man's ahead of the household and should always be, you know, the, you know, the, the final arbiter of decisions and, you know, should, and the implication should always kind of like know what he's doing and have his stuff together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the most recent example for me, um, so a couple of years ago, we, um, we, we, we bought our first house, um, <laughs> which that was a crazy story, but, <laughs> um, uh, one, one of the, one of the, one of the challenges for, for me though, um, in all of that was recognizing we, we, we have to get, we have to pick up a, a move in ready house because, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I personally am not really handy. Like I know like a little bit, I mean, I can, I can paint, I can use a hammer. I can do, do very little bit. We had some friends at the time who, you know, were, were contractors and worked in construction and they, 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 they had the capability to pick up this junk house for really cheap and make it beautiful like kind of all by themselves and i was like oh we could save like a hundred grand if i just knew how to like build a house or whatever and yes, yeah mm-hmm. it, it was this really big challenge to my my narrative of like what does it mean to be an acceptable man and i was like oh, i'm not handy i'm failing in some way um yeah it, it's taken a, a lot of reinforcement to recognize no 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 reese you, you you're good in other areas you're you're a specialist you're you're an emotional specialist and um mm-hmm. And I have to, but I need a lot of reminders of that. That's a valuable, valuable thing. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it seems like for, for men, a lot of times in a lot of places, like a much different skill set is celebrated than the one that, that I have. I'll yeah, like. exactly. Yeah, I know when I was um, uh, starting out and uh, wanting to be a therapist, that was something that I got a lot of pushback for, not from my own immediate family, but from extended family other you know family friends and even people who uh, were in uh the church that would push back on that and uh, be like therapy what well first they would go to you know of course the older grandparents would be like uh doesn't really pay well why are you doing that <laughs> uh, that's the first that's the first thing and you know <laughs> there's some truth to that <laughs> but uh um but then we'll go to a place of you know because it's a a uh female that you know where counseling is traditionally a field where there are more women than men working in the field. And that just is what it is. You know, I got a lot of pushback from myself as far as like being in that field as a male, starting that off. And I, you know, I was like, what talking about? And then I realized, you know, that 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 is more the case, but it never really, you know, bugged me myself. I never was intimidated. I always had more you know, uh, females within my, my my classes or in the places that I've worked in. And for me, that never bugged me. But for some people, <laughs> it it bothered them. But yeah, it's just interesting. Why do you think that men are reluctant to talk about feminism or reluctant to consider mm-hmm. consider that women are just as equal in most cases as they are? Um, or what, what do you suppose makes this conversation hard, hard for men? Um, I don't want to speak uh, in generalizations, but at the same time, I guess I might have to just because a majority of men, like you kind of bring to the point, do tend to struggle with this topic specifically. I think that, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, as far as like kind of going to like a human developmental wise, I think it comes from, depending on like what your confidence and insecurity is as a male. Cause I think for me, you know, when I first became more, uh, recognize this more as a, as a male, like when I had not worked out some of my own insecurities and confidence, you know, issues, you know, when, when, when the thing came up as far as like recognizing my own, like, you know, privilege as a white, you know, you know, heterosexual male, you know, I immediately got to places of like, you know, being having to feel like I have to, you know, defend myself. And I think that's what I've noticed a lot of like, you know, males who, when this topic or this you know, conversation comes up, they immediately are, you know, threatened by it and become defensive about it for no reason. Just, just by bringing up the topic in itself, because I think a lot of, you know, males struggle with maybe some of their own thinking errors that are happening are, you know, misperceiving it as, you know, the movement being an attack on men rather than it being like a fight for equality. And I think that by recognizing all these different factors of what it means to be a male and the differences within, you know, uh, equality and stuff like that, that therefore they have to like apologize for it. And therefore like, why would I have to apologize if I haven't done anything specifically? So I think that 
you know, and people have their own different viewpoints on it. I think that for me, I think that some of it comes from your own confidence and insecurity of how you view yourself as a male or uh, view, you know, equal rights, I think. I'm, I'm kind of feeling like rambled out as far as like you can go in a lot of different directions in regards to like what it could be. Yeah. But I think that yeah. it kind of, I think, at least for me, I think it boils down to maybe where you are at as a male when it comes to how you view yourself and also maybe in, in some of your own, you know, struggles of what like confidence and insecurity being like a huge factor, I think. Because yeah. I think that's what I wrestled with. And I've noticed that's what's something that a lot of other males wrestle with when the topic does come up. I, I, I could get behind that. Uh, this idea that um, confidence and inse- confidence and security, they're the really important things. And perhaps it's because, you know, again, going back to how kind of classical conditioning of men and women happens, you know. No, for sure. Yeah. Like men, um, I, was, I was thinking about like, like who, who were my male role models like growing up? Um, and, you know, it's going to tend to be, you know, like the, the role models in, in media are going to be, you know, the more powerful. And so I think when I was in high school, it was like, you know, like Braveheart and the Patriot and yeah, uh-huh. like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> fight club uh, as like, you know, this is what it means to be a, a strong, impervious, capable, sexy man is like, you have, you know, big muscles and you punch things. And mm-hmm. this is very uh, true. Yeah. Right. And also you have a really hot girlfriend and she must be hot and skinny or else you're also feeling as a man. Uh, so no it's very true yeah i think that like as far as like the uh the social aspect of it absolutely um in regards like that being like a like one of if not like one of the biggest factors is the way in which advertisements are done you know like i was like noticing the other day like uh how there was like some comedians like commenting on like how they had like the big pens and then big for her (laughs) or you know just even the way in which you know marketing has been done for so long you know like you go into a toy store there's you know there's, you know, you can easily tell which, <laughs> which is the, the aisle for like the boys, which is the aisle for the girls. <laughs> one right, is pink, right. one is blue, one has action figures, one has, you know, Barbie dolls, one has Legos, and one has, uh, more dolls. Uh, or, or even, or even just, uh, like art and some crafts, like, uh, as well. I mean, it's just like, they like, it's completely differentiated in the way like things are marketed. Yeah. There's this idea that, you know, men and women, boys and girls have to be, have to be different, have to be separate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that when they do come together, you know, the man has to be the one with all of the answers and the one with all of the wisdom and, and the, you know, the one who, who has the final say and knows it and never makes mistakes and, and can't fix it. Um, mm-hmm. These oppressively high standards that no man can meet and no man can, can sustain. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's, for sure a major factor underlying a lot of addictive compulsive behaviors is just like, ah, I, I want to swear here. It's this whole idea that like, you know, we, we have to be strong and we have to be impervious. And, and so I think that it's a prohibitive factor for a lot of men, like doing any introspection or doing a lot of like, you know, ownership acknowledgement of here's a weakness I have, here's the wrong that I've done. Mm -hmm. Here's, um, you know, here's a need that I have, which can then also make us really um, bristle against you know, running into like someone else's need. So yeah, all that tangent to support this idea that, yeah, um, you know, men might be reluctant to talk about feminism because we feel insecure about ourselves and we have it in our, we have it in our psyche that we're not supposed to feel that way. Yeah. Supposed to be secure, not insecure. Yeah. Right. And that, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, socially it's a huge, huge issue. I think that based on how you're raised too, is, is also like, how do you uh, like confront that obviously implicit, you know, like that, that bias that is out within like the way things are marketed or the way things are put out as far as like movies, video games, you know, products, marketing. I mean, so I think that that's definitely a huge factor, but it's also like how much you are raised and exemplify within your own family structure and home um, and how you like wrestle with that specifically. Because, you know, for me, like my father wasn't the, like the macho, outspoken, loud uh, male. He was more quiet, more timid, more emotional, and uh, didn't have to be the lead of every family meeting or something. And so that was part of the reason why he was, you know, very looked down upon within his position of being a pastor in a church a long time ago. And luckily he's in a better position now, but I know that, you know, for me growing up, like, I feel grateful and feel lucky enough to have had, you know, a father that, you know, while he did wrestle with that himself, he, uh, 
I think own that. And for me, like that gave me a good, healthy understanding of, you know, I think for some ways I did wrestle with it because I would see my dad and, you know, understandably compare him to like other fathers that you would see like on TV or like in the, you know, in, in movies and even, you know, video games and other like outlets and media. But for me, like, I think it's part of the reason why I was able to wrestle with it in early, earlier on or come to some other realizations that I've noticed some of my other uh, male colleagues or other people, you know, wrestle with a little like later on because I've, you know, I was able to, you know, luckily get that ex- example of that, you know, just because this is one form of what it means that like the, the stereotypical male is does not mean it represents uh, all forms of what it means to be a man, to be a father. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm thinking a bit about, um, you know, my dad too, who, you know, I mean, th- there are some challenging aspects to who he was, but um, he really embodied and, and he would, uh, my mom certainly would have, you know, praised him for this too. Like he embodied, you know, servant leadership where, mm-hmm. you know, you know, our family was structured with, you know, dad as head of household. And so, I mean, he did kind of have, you know, final say in a lot of things, but, um, but his whole goal was always, you know, what's best, you know, first for my mom, then for me and my brother. And, you know, he worked very tirelessly to always prioritize, you know, the other person and and so used his headship really for the good and benefit of everyone around him. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And to add to that, I think that not only did like that, like be the way I viewed my, my father, but it also, you know, shifted the way, you know, which I viewed like my mom, because anybody who knows me knows that I'm extremely close with uh, my mom. So I was also, you know, blessed not only to see, you know, you know, what, you know, what a male can be in a household, but also what it means to, you know, have like to even like also talk about what it means to like have quote unquote power in the relationship or like how it's shared or utilized. And, you know, does, you know, one person have it more often than the other, what it, what it even means to have power within a relationship. And for me, like I was grateful to like see my mom be the strong woman that she is. And for me, that was something that, you know, I grew to revere and also admire and love. And that, that was a huge part in shifting, like, especially with how she reacted to like, when I talked about earlier, the way in which her and my father were mistreated or, you know, mis, you know, judged for having an equal playing field relationship. And the fact that, you know, there were times where my mom could have the power of the relationship and my dad would, and that, that it goes back and forth, that it's fluid. It's not, you know, one having it dominantly over the other. And, you know, with that being said, that also kind of, you know, shifted and showed like what it meant for me to be a male and that it was okay to, uh, you know, cry because like you were kind of talking, alluding to earlier in movies and, you know, in TV shows and other forms of media, you know, men can't cry. They can't show any sort of weakness. They can't show any sort of like feelings or emotions. So, uh, I think that's okay. And then that, and then that's a whole other problem, but Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So, other tangent we'll get to that sometime yeah but, <laughs> for sure yeah um so what one other one other thread uh, i'd love to explore a little bit um you know we've alluded to so so we're we're both we're both counselors and living in, in the counseling environment and we're both you know in the church environment too and you know yeah. that's been where we've grown up um yeah um, you were wanting to, to reflect on like how, how have things progressed and how would we like things to still progress? You know, and I suppose in both environments, um, I think that'd be good to, to cover a little bit too, maybe, uh, starting, starting in, in, in the church, like what are, what are some observations you've made over the last, you know, 10, 15 years and what would you hope to see moving forward? That people are immediately triggered if a woman is a part of like an elder board you know like a group of leadership within the church or even just uh preaching that like at least that's what i saw you know like let's say 10 years ago before you know my parents went uh, and started their uh started a church together becoming like both you know pastors together so i think that that's something that i noticed early on is that you know it was very even to the point where some people viewed it as even wrong that a woman was in leadership in the church, that it went against what is, you know, that they would, you know, refer to as, you know, the Bible or what, you know, was in place. And, and luckily I've seen a a shift in that luckily in that like, uh, you know, I'm part of a denomination where uh, women, you know, can be ordained and can be uh, 
can, can preach. And I think that for me, what I hope to see going forward within the ministry is this drop of, and I, and I don't want to get into like the uh, theological aspect of it because that could <laughs> be really, really huge. And that's something that I still need plenty of education on. But based on the way I've heard certain things preached, you know, just hoping, hoping to see more. And I've been seeing it more recently within, you know, podcasts, within, you know, other churches, seeing, you know, females being able to uh, lead in the church, uh, not only being on leadership teams, but also being able to preach. And so my hope would be, as far as going forward, that that becomes more normalized and that that's not just a niche and that it's not just, you know, a certain denomination, you know, engaging in this, that this isn't just a certain kind of like demographic of a church, you know, population that's embracing this and that it can become more acceptable and more normalized. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see that too. I mean, I've been thinking, so, so it's my tradition um, and I'm, I'm I'm Orthodox Christian now. Uh, historically traditionally like have have not ordained women to to like to the priesthood in, in historical leadership um mm-hmm. but at the same time like the prime christian to say is you know the the virgin mary and you know we i mean we honor her above all christians for you know for for her work and so yeah there, there's a lot of ways that like you know that the head of, I mean, I mean, head of our head of our head of our traditions, obviously, you know, Jesus. But like, you know, a second is like, you know, a woman, and we mm-hmm. look to this woman as our chief example. And there's, you know, a really high reverence for the women saints, and some of whom were queens. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, and Judges, yeah. yeah, and there's, um, I've definitely observed, you know, there. I mean, my traditions, it's it's a little bit more um, traditionally hierarchical, but somehow also with like a high, high reverence for, for the value of women. Um, I mean, if there was uh, if there was a moving forward there, I think, I, I think I would like to see more conversations around, you know, the, the, the role of women and being able to have women teachers and mm-hmm. yeah. you know, more women writers, you know, even, even within the church. And um, I think I'd really love to see that. And, you know, kind of at the same time, also seeing men really being able to challenge and reflect on, um, I mean, we might have this like spiritual idea of what manhood is, but then that that plays out practically and functionally in in a way in our everyday lives, and yeah. that that's always up for for evaluation and revision too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know. So, in, in your tradition, what what would you hope to see moving forward within the church? Yeah. Um, yeah, like like I was saying, just that it becomes more normalized and not like because uh, I've seen a lot of church skip uh, put down and other even like Christians within like certain you know. Christian universities still have difficulty when it comes to like a female, uh, you know, being able to teach and being able to preach. It, luckily it's gone down since then I've noticed, but uh, some of my time, because I've been to two different uh, private Christian universities. And so I've uh, luckily been able to see like a push and a uh, more of an understanding and acceptance of that and, you know, encouraging that and not putting it down. And I'm hoping that that trajectory can continue um, even in, you know, conservative, you know, private Christian universities where like, you know, for a while didn't really see much of that, but now I'm starting to see more of it. So that's been really encouraging. So, I mean, just to kind of add what I had said previously is just that my hope is just to normalize it more and that it doesn't become an issue. Like it doesn't have to become like, Oh, here we go (laughs) within like church leadership boards and and stuff like that, that, you know, this can just become more normalized and that it doesn't have to be an issue. It's just like, Oh, okay. You want to be a part of, you know, what we're doing here. Great. Let's, let's incorporate. You want to, you want to be able to teach here. Okay, great. Like that's not like, obviously, you know, with that being said, you know, there's obviously still, you know, within the church, like there's a lot of different factors when it comes to, you know, you know, education, but then also just, you know, lifestyle and how much you, you know, live your life as a, as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ to do that. So like not negating, you know, being able to like have that kind of standard, but in regards to like gender and sexuality, not being a, you know, uh, not a tripping point. Yeah. 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 That would be, that would be a really great thing to see too. Just like the way, uh, yeah. Like we've been talking about kind kind of a, kind of a level playing field. I mean, sure. People could have their different strengths or different roles, but to have them all really valued and to really, have like no hindrance to men and women both learning from each other. Um, yeah. And, it, and it's okay that, you know, some, you know, like, like a female can like do, you know, do well in being in, in a leadership role as far as like being able to teach better than as a male, because for so long it's been like, 
you know, like you see it even in universities, like, and luckily you're seeing it more and more where like, you know, being able to see like more women professors as well, but like in the same level playing field that, you know, your gender does not determine like, you know, what kind of role you should have or your ability to be, you know, a commander or to be, you know, someone that can, you know, lead by example or lead by preaching or teaching. For sure. For sure. In a, you know, in a different sphere, thinking about how things play out in like, like the counseling environment, speaking, you know, speaking to the counseling world, um, and, and this conversation is more at the forefront in that world. And there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of people smarter than you or me who are doing a lot of things, but for sure. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. But, but even still like what, um, what are some things you'd hope to see in the counseling world to, you know, level the playing field and, um, and do all this. Um, I don't know how this would happen specifically. Um, but I would love to see, uh, females have more of a position because like you see because luckily it's a dominant field by like women in regards to like being like like a therapist but i would love to see uh females to be a part of more of the continue to be more a part of recently the theory based part of like of of the, of the of this field being able to have like more of a voice when it comes to how certain theories are formulated or even how some you know research and studies are done specifically on those who are struggling because if you look at you know, our early textbooks and, you know, our, the theories with which that we use for our theoretical orientations. I mean, they're, most of them are, you know, uh, based on, you know, what white males have put in and put in place. And so some of what we use in therapy can be, you know, obviously still very much powerful and healing, but, you know, a lot of it came from uh, an approach to theoretical understanding uh, from a white male's perspective. So for me, you know, as we like, grow more in understanding and, you know, find new different approaches and ways in which to do uh, therapy that that becomes uh, more of a way in which, you know, females aren't just, you know, working as, you know, therapists or supervisors or, you know, director leads within the mental health agencies, but that they get to be a part of, you know, the conceptualization of some of those uh, uh, theories and just ways in which of doing therapy. And then from, um, and then as far as like from, you know, as far as like viewing, you know, yourself as a male within, you know, the therapy mental health field, the hugest, the biggest thing though, is for, you know, men being able to give uh, space to women. And I think one way in which I do that specifically as a, as a, as a male therapist is whenever I, you know, work not only just with uh, female th- uh, clients, but also male clients, but, you know, I like to have this spiel with, you know, the female clients I work with that, you know, I addressed early on, like within my first initial session, that when we're doing the, you know, the intake and doing like the assessment that, you know, I kind of put it out there as a male that like, hey, you know, I recognize that I am, you know, a white heterosexual male and that I can represent a lot. I can represent sexism. I can represent racism. I can represent oppression. Mm -hmm. I can represent all these different things that might be that like, you know, it might be difficult for us to even work, uh, work together with. And that I, you know, let my client know, like, you know, I recognize that I can represent all that. So I just want to let you know that, you know, if you have any thoughts about that or anything like that, but I just want to let you know, as you know, as we work together, like I recognize those things. So if anything like that comes up or if you feel like you need to wrestle with that, or if that is even, you know, can ever be an issue, like I, you know, let them know that they can feel comfortable to bring that to the table. And that for me, I'm not going to be uncomfortable to wrestle with that and to let them know early on if they feel comfortable to even, you know, work with me as, you know, mm-hmm. as a white male. And I've noticed that that really um, like opens new doors. And I've, I've seen even some clients immediately like shift their, like the way in which they were like initially reacting to me and all of a sudden are engaged when they weren't. So um, like when we first started like meeting together. So I think that hopefully not, not to say like every, you know, male therapist needs to have their spiel <laughs> or like have their way of like, you know, interacting, you know, like one way of doing yeah. it. But. And yet though, that might actually be a good, good thing to, to push for is, you know, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, have a spiel. What I'm, what I'm noticing in what you're doing there, Nick, is, you know, you're, you're taking the lead on bringing the, the invisible into the visible and bringing the, the conscious and assume, the unconscious assumed into the, into their conscious you know, because what's not addressed cannot, what's not identified cannot be addressed. And what's not talked about is not getting talked about, but it's still mm-hmm. there. It's still wreaking havoc. So, yeah. You know, and, you know, in a lot of other cases, you know, typically speaking, the person with less power doesn't have safe liberty to, to bring up the problems. And so, yeah. 
you know, if you are in the position of power, you know, using that power to actively bring the threats into the room to address and to, and to mitigate, it feels like a really, really good approach. Uh, you know, modified per person situation, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, like you said, because for upcoming, you know, just starting out therapists, you know, I've recognized that, you know, there, and like you, and you learn this within your grad program that there is a huge power differential. You are the expert, you know, not that we're all <laughs> experts, but you're viewed as, you know, the mental health expert within you have the, the label of experts. So you, you have, the, you have yeah. the label of the expert. Exactly. So that comes with, like you were talking about a lot of powers. So how are you going to address that and like bring that to the forefront and being able to use that in a way that's going to help a client feel comfortable, especially, you know, a female client who has most likely been oppressed and has been, you know, has, and probably, and, and the thing is that what surprises me is that, and I've gotten like feedback on this, that this isn't something that a lot of female or female clients usually hear. And and that's what kind of breaks my heart. And I'm hoping that, you know, that can not just be something to recognize when they're working with a, with a female client, but, or even just a male client too, who might be struggling with like, you know, gender roles or like understandings of like how they view themselves as a male and, you know, or any other kind of like uh, sexual like identity that someone might identify with or, you know, be, but that, you know, it's recognized, you know, what you bring to the table and what you might represent. And I'm hoping that, you know, that can be more, you know, approach and not be afraid to approach that within therapy you know, under the right circumstances and how you approach it based on the client, obviously, but also just in other areas of life as well that like, you know, that, that doesn't become a foreign thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd love to see that. You know, we'd, like, we'd love to see some shifts in how power is managed. Um, another one I'm thinking of, and, and maybe we'll start wrapping here, but I'd love to see things reevaluated as far as how, how we know and how we relate <laughs> therapy is an inherently relational thing. And mm -hmm. You know, again, in in grad school, we're we're taught to relate in this you know kind of you know male oriented way. That's you know kind of logical, kind of rigid boundaries. You know, we love our evidence based practices because that's the tangible stuff we can see and know with a very particular way of knowing. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't yeah. really give a lot of space for other ways of knowing, like intuitively and emotionally, and it doesn't give a lot of space for you know connecting in a very relationship way. Um, mm -hmm. stereotype says, you know, men are very solutions oriented and, you know, want to fix things. We like our solutions. I'm thinking, you know, we, we like being able to bust out a solution and a worksheet because that means we don't have to get too close emotionally. And yeah. I feel like a, a shift would be to adopt some of the air quotes, you know, feminine relationship traits, like, let's just be together. Let's just like share emotions. Um, let's, let's cry together. Um, let's, um, Let's recognize what we don't know. And, you know, I mean, not to, you know, not ever going to throw, throw science out, you know, at all. Or, and, you know, there's a lot of value in evidence-based practices, but I think there's a lot of value in other w approaches as well, you know, cause there's a lot of other ways of actually knowing things. And yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I would add to that. And also just the fact that we like, uh, now that I'm calling like, anything specifically, but just like, even that, like, like it's just the fact that like, you know, the growth in that, like we still have to, like we still have to describe those kinds of like modalities or ways in which you're doing things as feminine or as this, like, I'm hoping that like, you know, we can grow to a place where that's just one way of approaching it and not having to, cause like, unfortunately we have to sometimes like use terms like that just to help people understand what we're talking about. That like we come to a place where that doesn't like that a certain way in which stereotypically, you know, specific gender or sexuality might act might be the way in which we do a theoretical approach or approach just any sort of situation in general that like, it's just, this is one way of doing it and let's incorporate that more. And it's not, you know, and it like hopefully doesn't have to be dominated or referred to as like, you know, the male way of doing it or the feminine way of doing it. And that like, it's just different ways in which to, you know, theoretically approach something. For and sure. I think that, and I think that you're, I think you're right. I think that, you know, it has been more like evidence based practice of like, here's your worksheet. Here's like, where are the thinking errors? Where can we address those? And, you know, the maladaptive thinking, the maladaptive behavior, you know, let's, let's get to work on, you know, cutting those things out and processing it. And then, you know, okay, move on. You know, I'm, I'm with you there as far as like being able to have more evidence-based practices in place that like, not only can you do like within private practice that, but hopefully more mental health, you know, agencies in places where they, you know, have to charge insurance and have to have like certain treatment plans in place where things have to be, you know, you know, I have to have certain objectives and stuff, but that like, you know, 
that we can adopt not just one mode of modality, like more things can become more evidence-based. And like you're saying, we're relational beings and that's the, the foundation of what we do yet. Like what you're talking about, a lot of the ways in which to kind of build that rapport and to build that trust to like, you know, process some deep things is still, you know, undervalued and, you know, isn't, you know, necessarily evidence-based right now, like what you were alluding to. Nick, I really appreciate you taking time to hash out some of these ideas with me. Uh, I think um, we've been um, <laughs> we've been in deep waters, and uh, <laughs> some <laughs> yeah, people might sure. say we don't it's belong here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dear listener, I appreciate if you've stuck around for this long in the episode. Um, thank you very much. Um, there's a high possibility we've uh, offended somebody. Uh, oh, we, sure. <laughs> we we humbly apologize and did. Uh, genuinely invite you to let us know and you reach back out to us and uh, either offer correction feedback or other ideas or you know help us develop the conversation we're definitely still learning we want to learn we want to be good for people and for people to be well so uh, Nick if someone wanted to reach out to you uh, where's a good place for them to find you that's a good question. Uh, you can reach out to my, uh, my, my business email, which is um, nbreckbeal28 at gmail.com if you have any like questions or concerns. If you like know somebody who might want to be in touch with getting in touch with like intensive community-based treatment services from where I'm at or have any questions about those kind of services, you can email me at nbreckbeal28. That's uh, breckbeal, B as in boy, R-E-C-H-B-I-E-L 28 at gmail.com to if you have any like questions or concerns about that or need to be led in the right direction. So yeah, that'd be the, uh, the best way. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. You can find him there. Uh, you can find uh, smart council at a uh, smart council podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we can check that and we're on patreon.com slash smart council because we like Ooh. money too. <laughs> so, nice. <laughs> thanks again, Nick. And thanks again, listener. And let's keep the conversation going. Absolutely. Thank you. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music